Today's episode was produced in cooperation between the Veterans Club, the Coeur d'Alene Rotary Club, and the Museum of North Idaho. The interview with Marine Corps Lieutenant General John Davis was recorded in front of a live audience on Veterans Day 2022. Welcome to the Veterans Club Podcast, a production where veterans and community meet and thrive. We talk with veterans about their life and military service and to veterans organizations about their community service efforts. We've joined forces with the Baby Boomers Radio Network to help increase the reach of veterans and their heart for service. With your help sharing these episodes, we can reach more people and change more lives. Thank you for tuning in and thank you to our veterans for their service to country and community. Lieutenant General John M. Davis, retired, is chairman of the board of the directors of Rolls-Royce North America and Addison Incorporated, which is a national data center operation and developer serving both commercial and government clients. His biography, as you know, is in the program, but I'm going to read just some highlights of it because of the Zoomers and also because uh, there will also be a podcast uh, of, this, of, this pre- of this presentation, which will get more information to everybody uh, at, a, at a later time. For the past five and a half years, John and his wife, Carol, have lived in Sagal on Lake Ponderé. They have two married sons, both are striped naval aviators, and they also have two beautiful daughters-in-law and four granddaughters. The general just returned from a very successful elk hunting trip with one of his sons. So he sent me a picture. It was unbelievable. General Davis joined the Marines in 1977. He was commissioned after he graduated from college in 1980 and served 37 years as an aviator, instructor, leader, thinker, and doer. He flew many different types of aircraft with the Marine Corps, including as an exchange officer with the Royal Air Force. His last active duty billet was to serve as the Deputy Commandant for Aviation Headquarters in the Marine Corps, where he managed a $13.3 billion yearly budget, a thousand plus aircraft and a workforce of 57,000 personnel. In his career, he has flown over 4,300 mishap-free military hours, plus over 1,500 hours in general and experimental aviation aircraft. He retired in 2017 from the Marine Corps and began his business career helping good companies become better ones or in helping others become with great ideas to life and then to market. General Davis holds a Bachelor of Science from Allegheny College, Master of Science from Marine Corps University, and a Master of International Public Policy from Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. He's also a graduate of the Wharton School Boards That Lead program. His topic today will be Veterans Day and the importance of veterans to our national security. Please welcome Lieutenant General John M. Dog, which is his call sign, Dog Davis. Please welcome General Davis. My, my mother would be so proud. Um, this, first off, thanks for inviting uh, me to come down from, uh, from uh, 7B uh, to share Veterans Day with you. And I'm a, uh, my, uh, we've lived out here for a little over five years. It's really funny when I uh, 
I'll talk a little bit about what I did in the Marine Corps, but I got a set of orders I thought were a little bit unique. I got sent to Fort Meade, Maryland, right after I commanded our Top Gun school in Yuma, Arizona. And in my world, that wasn't a, uh, that wasn't a good move. And uh, it was the first of two tours I spent at Fort Meade. But when I got orders there, I knew someday I was going to finish. My time in the Marine Corps was going to be up, and I'd have to do something different. So we started thinking about where we wanted to settle down as a family. And we had two sons who were at the Naval Academy. We kind of figured they would be get married someday and that they would probably produce children. And uh, we said, okay, I'm going to stay in the Marine Corps longer than I anticipated. I'm not going to make as much money as I thought I would. We're long haul getting out at, uh, as a colonel. And uh, so let's have a better place to track grandchildren than any family those boys could possibly marry into. <laughs> so we were, we were playing hardcore. And uh, bottom line, we picked a we, we bought a place up at Schweitzer Mountain and then uh, bought some land in Sagal. And then um, in 2017, when I retired, my mentor said, dog, don't you dare retire to some mountainside in Montana. You need to, I said, I promise you I will not retire to mountainside in Montana. What I did not tell them, I'm going to drive straight through Montana on my way to Idaho. <laughs> Facts matter. Yeah. Um, really, I, I love the fact that we're getting together like this, and I listen to why the Rotary exists. In some ways, it's what I'm going to talk about a little bit today, um, the meaning of Veterans Day. So Veterans Day um, started as Armistice Day. And the, the end of the First World War in 1918, it was a terrible fight, and I've studied a lot of history, and probably one of the worst wars um, and its impact on society and communities and um, the world um, was the First World War. Um, the only, only exceeded per capita by the U.S. Civil War, with a number of cat 10% casualties in the, by the North and the South. But they, uh, they decided to have an armistice day, and it was on November 11th, 1919, and they started calling that uh, uh, Memorial Day internationally. And if you go with the Brits right now, or they, there's a, they all wear red poppies right around this time of year uh, to reflect the Flanders fields and the poppies and the battlefields over there. And there's, you go to the battlefields, there's still lots of poppies there. But that Memorial Day is, is distinctly different than what a Veterans Day is. Memorial Day is for those service personnel we lost in, in service to our nation. Um, that's what we th should be thinking about Memorial Day. Veterans Day is different. So in 1954, the United States decided to have a Veterans Day where we recognize the contributions, the sacrifice, and the service of veterans of all the services um, for the United States. And it's, a, it's actually a really interesting and neat <laughs> Neat day, and a lot of people get the two mixed up. I just wanted to be kind of set level bubble here and set uh, what we're talking about today. It's really honoring veterans. And I, I grew up. I did not grow up in Idaho. I wish I did. I had. It took me a little while to get there, um, but we did, and uh, we're we'll never leave uh, this great state. Um, the uh, but I think in service and sacrifice is something we ought to be thinking about. But I think veterans contribute a lot more, and they're really important to our country maybe more so than any other country in the world because of the way our country came about. We, we talked about that oath of office that you took, sir. All the officers of the military swear an oath of office not to the president, maybe not like in the United Kingdom to the queen um, or the king. We swear an oath of office to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution of the United States, um, against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And you think about that, we're, we're swearing an oath to an idea, which is the idea of this country. Um, so I started thinking about what I would talk to you about today, because you know, this is kind of a unique thing, me being retired and talking about veterans, and I, I am a veteran, so I'll talk about the other veterans. But I'm going to give you my perspective on why 
Um, what's important about being a veteran, not to be, that extends well beyond our service and uniform. And I think as a kid growing up, I remember the people that ran my little town in Hamburg, New York, which is just south of Buffalo, right up on, you know, the steel, near the steel mills, or used to be steel mills, they're not there anymore. Um, you could always smell the sulfur in your nose and the, and the, when the wind was the right way for the, the Ford stamping plant, Bethlehem Steel and all that stuff. Um, New York State's pretty much driven all that business out. Um, but I remember the, 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 the veterans, it was the people that ran that little town. They were vets. They were World War II vets. Some were missing limbs. They're Korean War vets. And then more and more, my buddy's brothers were serving in Vietnam. Um, and uh, I remember them. We looked up to them. And every once in a while, they come back from boot camp. And uh, we were getting a little bit of trouble. We'd get some of the other the boys in the neighborhood were coming after us. These guys were Marines. They came, they came after them basically and chased them off. But I remember the, the vets ran the Boy Scouts. They ran the Little League. They, they basically pleased up the neighborhood. They were the fabric that held that town together. And frankly, in Hamburg, New York, you couldn't be a little dirtbag and get away with anything because someone is going to catch you doing it and, gonna, and basically uh, correct you on the spot immediately, and you never forgot it. Um, but you think about that. Those were the people that were keeping the flame um, and basically making sure that we grew up to be good little citizens. Um, and uh, we knew... You could see them during the, I remember Pleasant Avenue Elementary School. How do I remember that? I just do. That was back in the early 60s and uh, mid-60s. And during the, the sports events and during any kind of event in the auditorium, they'd play the service hymns like we did today. And you'd see people standing up in the crowd, grandfathers, fathers, brothers, and sisters, um, and standing up in the crowd. And basically, there's a real sense of pride with these veterans. And then you say, well, that, these people are standing up. They're also the same people running my Little League team running my Boy Scout troop, you know, teachers in school, policemen, <laughs> firemen, the people that we all looked up to, that we all wanted to be like when we grew up. They were the leaders. So I started thinking about what vets mean to us as a country and a society. And I think at the end of the day, it's leadership. It's leadership and it's vision about what we should be doing even in our, in our worst days. Um, there's a, our author, I, I read a lot, I'm not a geek, but I read a lot, and I read a lot about history because I think when my, 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 there's a book, set of books called Lee's Lieutenants, which is about the, the three-star generals that worked for Robert E. Lee in the Civil War. Wrong side of the fight, but a really interesting study in, 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 in human performance and leadership in some pretty dark days. And my grandmother, who never went to college, drank way too much, in 1942 when those, that, those books came out, she bought those things right off the shelf and read them. And she wrote on the inside cover to my father, who was seven years old, you know, read these books, never, never forget the lessons that history has. You know, you don't want to repeat these lessons in the future. So she gave that to my father. I'm not sure my father ever read those books. He didn't like history. But he gave them to me when I got commissioned as a lieutenant in the Marine Corps. And I already had a set. So I gave those books. I loved them. It was great reading. Um, and Freeman wrote not only about Robert E. Lee's troops, but he also is probably the preeminent historian about um, uh, Lincoln and also George Washington, the father of the American military. And Freeman talked about the, and I gave that, gave that book now to my eldest son, who's now a Marine F-35 pilot, a lieutenant colonel getting ready to take command of an F-35C squadron and going off on a carrier going in harm's way in the Pacific. Um, Freeman talked about great leaders and what they exhibit. They know their stuff. They take care of their people and their people of character. 
And you think about the veterans, regardless of your walk of life, what you do, you've done that in, in uniform, you've served in uniform, you've been a leader in uniform. But that's what, to me, what veterans were doing in the Boy Scout troop and the Little League teams, you know, they, they knew their stuff. They were professionals in the community. They paid their taxes. They, they followed, the, they didn't break the law within reason. They, <laughs> everybody makes mistakes every once in a while. But, but they knew their stuff. They knew their stuff, and frankly, they knew their stuff about their business. They're continually, what I saw, self-improving. Because they've actually, veterans have seen some pretty tough times. Whether it's learning, whether it's a drill instructor getting your face, you know, make it, trying to make it grow up from being 18, or being 13 to being 18, um, or it's in combat, or in dealing with some difficult challenges. Wherever you are, you're always, you never have enough of resources, right? You're always told to get the job done, basically take care of your folks. But know your stuff. So basically, self-improvement, that's the American way, right? It's, it's about, you know, trying to make ourselves better each and every day. And, uh, and, it, and the military is a true meritocracy. doesn't matter where you grew up, right, who your parents are, where you went to college. Um, you do your job the right way. You, will, you can rise to the top. I did not go to a service academy. I ended up being a three-star general. A bit of a miracle, probably. But bottom line is, just prove if you do your thing the right day, the right way every time, every day, and do the right things by people and be a good leader, you can advance in the service. So bottom line, self improvement is is the cornerstone of, of military life and knowing their stuff. And all the veterans I knew were trying to be a better mechanic, a better teacher, a better whatever. They're always trying to self improve because they wanted to make a better way in life for themselves. And uh, they learned a lot of that. Whether they might have had some challenging use, the service gave them a, a kind of an aiming point uh, to be to mature very quickly and to move out and do great things. Um, so they know their stuff. Um, take care of their people. You know, great leaders take care of their people. And that's not just saying the right things to people or being nice to people that you shouldn't be nice to. It's about understanding your subordinates and your peers and sometimes your superiors, understanding what makes them tick and optimizing their performance because militaries have to, op veterans learn you, the only way to succeed is to operate as a team and make sure that each and every person out there can do your job just as well as you can because you might not be here in a few minutes. In the military, um, one, the one profession, you don't know if you're coming home that night or if the guy you're talking to in the morning at the squadron is going to be there at the end of the day or you're going to be going seeing that family. So it's about making yourself ready and taking care of those folks so they don't have a bad day. You, if they've got some weaknesses, you're picking them up and basically making sure that that team, like a football team, carries the day each and every time and the balloon goes up and we can do our job. So they took care of their people. And it also manifests itself with how they treat their families. I always just say, I've never met a good leader that didn't take care of the fire team at home. Right? And that's the wife and the kids. And so basically, good leaders are learning how to do that. And we learned how to do that from guys like Jim Amos. You know, as a young guy, Here's somebody that's out there, married, got kids. My wife and I had no kids. We're like, hey, we could be like that someday. That's a pretty normal family. And I was in a family. My dad was Air Force. But there no, we didn't know really any you know, active duty military people or career military. It was all just people who served for about two years. Uh, but they took care of their people. Um, and they're also people of character. Um, I think the character thing is really important. Um, you know, they didn't, you can't get away a line. You know, it's like, you know, you always said, uh, you know, basically do what you do, what you say you're going to do and do it. If you're actually do it, saying one thing and doing another, your enlisted will see it in a heartbeat. They know when you're a fake. Right. So you can't be a fake. And so you get to a certain point out there as a military person where 
you're comfortable making mistakes, admitting to making mistakes, and that way that your organization gets better and you get better, and people kind of self-correct. And you think you take a look at what veterans do. That's what they did on active duty. Whether they did it, did it perfectly or not, they learn that, and then they bring that back when they come back home and they apply that to their communities. Think about that from a leadership perspective, and frankly, how that helps our communities um, be better. All right, and it's the thing you learn in the military or in the service. It's service above self. Service above self. There's something bigger than you out there. And it allows you to kind of capture that and think about it and apply that, certainly when you come back home. And the number of us, so for me, I was a college freshman, um, not doing great. I was doing really well. I got into the frat house I wanted to get into. That was an objective. It was very, very important to me. Um, but it reflected in my grades. And uh, I was working on putting a lot of hours in. They weren't effective hours. They weren't efficient hours. They were just hours. And to me, going to the library was... Going to chat up the girls. I'd have the books open. I'd probably have a lot of highlighter on there, but I didn't get a lot out of it. Um, and I was—I wasn't a bad kid. I was an Eagle Scout. My parents raised me well. I was just 18 and knucklehead, right? Like there's a lot of knuckleheads in the crowd. I bet they were in their 18. And I was hitchhiking to Buffalo, where my parents lived, with one of my guys I was pledging the frat house with, who never graduated from it. He didn't make it all the way through, and. Uh, he told me he was met with these guys in the campus center that were a cult. Okay, who were they? He goes, they're Marines. Like, I remember when I was in high school in the 70s, the schools were trying to chase the service recruiters out. They didn't want them there after the Vietnam War. It was terrible. So my guidance counselors in high school said, you're too nice to go in the military. What do I know, right? I really said, I think I want to serve. I want to do something. So I did, met with Navy recruiters with army recruiters and about ROTC. And I didn't want to go to the schools they were offering, so I said, I'm just not going to go in the military. My father said, I actually got a Navy scholarship to college and turned it down. My father, he's going, what? Okay, and uh, (laughs) so this guy said, I met these guys in the campus center, and I think it's a cult. It's like, okay, we'll tell you about it. You go to boot camp in the summer, six weeks, they shave your head, they beat you up. I'm like, but it's a good PT and physical training. They go, yeah, it's great. I'm like, okay, well, I've got to play ball this fall. So that maybe would help me be in shape. And I'm probably just going to get myself in trouble this summer, coming back home, uh, not be in college this summer. Um, what else? I said, is, is you commit, you said, you're not committed. You don't have to do it. And I said, what's the pay? And he goes, I don't know. I said, well, is it better than minimum wage? Because that's all I've looked forward to this summer. And that was 1977. Minimum wage was not a lot. And I, would, I drink more in beer than I would make minimum wage. So it's going to be upside down by the end of the summer. Um, so I said, you know, and they wouldn't let you drink beer at boot camp. So six weeks of, min- of above minimum wage pay, I said, hmm. So I got my mom and dad's car, drove that car to the north side of Buffalo, dropped this guy off. I came back and I went to the recruiter. Marine recruiter, Marine Corps. No Marines in my family other than the kids when I was in the second grade, the older brothers. I didn't know any of them. And I went in and um, they gave me a test, like an SAT. And I did very well on that. And then they gave me another test. And it was a lot of math and physics. So I was an economics major, not a math major, not a science major. And they said, hey, you crushed both those exams. Okay. What's that mean? He goes, and they said, I said, what was the second one? They said, there's a AQTFAR. What's that? That's a flight aptitude test. I said, why would you give me that? Because you could fly in the Marine Corps. I said, do you guys have airplanes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It shows you where I was, right? 
blanked my eyes, dumped all memory. Um, so I ended up, I always tell people, I'm running Marine Corps Aviation, this thousand airplane force, and I joined the Marine Corps not knowing they had airplanes. But what the Marine Corps did offer that I knew I needed down deep was discipline and structure and focus. And I just thought that would be the one, that's a guaranteed three, you know, 10 ring shot uh, to go get that if I joined the Marines, I was gonna get that. So I signed up and then I came home and told my parents what I'd done. I was 18, I could do that. Like what? You know, I'm, I'm still going back to college, mom. My mom was cried hysterically. My father said, hold on. And uh, he sent me over to see a family friend that I knew that I respected that was a Marine. Like, okay, all right, that guy, it was good. And so I went to the I went to the Marine Corps. I loved it. I mean, the first summer I was I had a lot of work to do, uh, getting fixed. Um, I was in with a lot of enlisted guys that uh, knew how to do this, and I knew nothing about it. Completely different culture. But I, I, I was an, an average candidate candidate with average prospects for success. It was how I was graded at the end. I learned that average is good in the Marine Corps, right? That's average is better than below average, and no one gets to be above average. Um, and then I went. I spent two years to think about it. Went back a second time and did much better in my second class, my second boot camp. And then when I graduated and went to the basic school, six months of infantry training at Quantico was an honor graduate. First time in my life I was succeeding and coming out on top. Went from there to flight school. I flew the T thirty four Turbo Mentor and then started to fly the hair. Away. I went to jets, T twos, then T fours. And my first ride in a jet aircraft was with. Major Amos, who was a flight instructor in Meridian, Mississippi back in 1981. And uh, he wanted me to be an F-18 pilot and be an instructor. And you, you have to stand and be an instructor for a couple of years. Then I could be in the first class of F-18s in the Marine Corps. And the Falklands had just happened with the British. And the Marine Corps had the Harrier. And I had, I was the number one guy in, in grades. I'm like, I'm going to get the Harrier. I'm going to get the last Harrier slide. They only let a couple of lieutenants do it a year. And so he brought me in and said, I want you to be an instructor. I said, I, I don't, can you make me do that, sir? Because <laughs> no, but I'm giving you this incredible opportunity to be in the first squadron of F-18s in Marine Corps. I'm like, well, I don't, I have Harrier grades now. I, I only have a three and a half year commitment. I don't want to spend a year and a half of that three and a half year commitment flying orange and white. So that's the way how they painted the training airplanes. I said, I'm going to go fly Harriers. And I'm going to go defeat the Warsaw Pact, communism. And then I'm going to go to get my MBA. That's what I'm going to do. He got very angry, got a very red face and told me to get out of his office. <laughs> and I went to go fly Harriers. And I did. And I struggled, but it was a great airplane to fly. Uh, 3,500 hours in that airplane, mishap free. Flew it all over the world. And like anything, it was... That airplane was bigger and badder than I was, but after a while I learned just every day, be a little, little bit better than the day you were before, work hard, don't, don't break the rules. You know, you can have a hell, heck of a lot of fun staying inside the box with a military airplane. And I just, I knew that was my war machine. And the military has a way of also growing up. So I was young, had my motorcycle, not quite Tom Cruise, not that, not that cool. <laughs> But I'm flying a single-seat jet that could land vertically, do 650 miles an hour, and I got a motorcycle and a nice wife. And, uh, and I had uh, a little boy in the way, Jeff. And uh, my best buddy, it's a Cobra pilot, he goes out to a place called Grenada and gets shot down and killed. So the military also grows you up very quickly. So I was mature and disciplined. Now I had a new, a new sense of what was important. And that was the thing that kind of scored me away and, Got me going. His name is Jeff, won the Silver Star. Uh, my eldest boy's named after him.
Um, but I think you know that those kind of lessons stay with you and make you a better person. I think honestly, I think what our country needs. So we're saying thank you to veterans today, but I'm going to ask all the veterans out there to double down and help lead this country. You don't have to lead from in front. We lead from behind. We see stuff that's not right. We say something. We fix it. You know, somebody littering out there, stop it. Little stuff leads to big stuff. It's about getting the little kids to be disciplined, like that little town in Hamburg, New York, where veterans come up and they police little guys like me up and make, oh, so I didn't grow up to be a dirtbag. And thank God they did. Thank God they did. And so I tell you, I went back to Hamburg, New York, go look for my baseball coach, my base, Ed Logel, telephone installer. My father was a young executive. Ed was a lineman. Guess what the linemen did every, every Christmas? They went out on strike or threatened to. And my dad would have to go out and install telephones at the reservation, and Ed Logo would be on our front porch drinking a beer, waiting for my dad to come from work. <laughs> because you guys can assign. But, you know, that was just their job. That was them knowing their stuff and doing their job. Ed pressured my dad to get the stuff signed, and my dad learned how to install telephones um, so he could buy a little more time. People have telephone service. But Ed Logo was a great baseball coach and a great and a veteran. And I was an outfielder and not a good athlete. And I was in the outfield and I was missing balls because I wasn't paying attention. Ed Logel knew his stuff and knew how to take care of people. And he told my father, he is, your, kid, your kid's killing us. He's killing us. You know, he keeps, whenever the ball does get hit out there, we really need him to get it if he's not paying attention. It's almost like people are yelling at me, you chase me around, go over there, go over there, go there. And he goes, I've studied him. He's fearless. He's talking about me. He can throw the ball. He's got really good eyes. We're going to make him catcher. That way he can't not be involved in every play. <laughs> we won the championship, right? So it's about uh, veterans sometimes see stuff that other people don't. They, they're always about optimizing the situation, <laughs> turning a bad player into a better player. And I think if we did that out here today in society, all of us, society would be better. It's basically one person at a time, and veterans can add a lot to that. Um, political class is doing what the political class is going to do, right? This country is not great because of the political class. It's because it's great because of its citizens. Us, us, do your job. Veterans, do, we need to do our job. Thanks so much. Happy Veterans Day. Yeah, you're We've come a long way from the, uh, the traditional battlefield, and I know you have had some background in cyberspace. Uh, what can you say about that and what can you share about space itself? Yeah, I, honestly, I think the the cyberspace stuff. I I, I was a reluctant um, participant in that effort. I I remember telling um, the General Keith Alexander, later director of the NSA and Commander Cyber Command, Army Army Three Star, then Four Star, wonderful guy, um, whose father was an enlisted Marine. Um, I said, why, and he was trying to interview me to go to Fort Meade. I'm like, and the Marine Corps nominated me because they didn't want the job, and I was the least qualified of the 10 brand-new generals. So they said, you'll never get it. I said, you guys are terrible at this. I'm going to get picked. I know it. And I was on my way to Iraq to be a wing commander, which is what I wanted to do. I thought God put me on the planet to lead a Marine aircraft wing in combat and support our, our guys on the ground. That's what I, all I wanted to do. And I'd been over there a bunch, but not in command of a wing. And uh, so I got nominated and I'm in this interview with General Keith Alexander about this thing he had going up at Fort Meade. And I told him, I said, he goes, what do you think? I said, honestly, he goes, yeah. I said, I think very little of this idea. I said, I have zero interest in what you do up there. 
I failed college math the first time, and uh, I don't like computers. <laughs> and he, he said, it says here you're a, you're a, you're a graduate of the Marine School of Advanced Warfighting, which is a strategic operational, uh, create, actually create problem solving school. Um, you're the CEO of the Top Gun School in the Marine Corps. Says it sounds like you can make hard, you make things happen um, and put things together. He goes, I've got the world's largest concentration of math, computer science, computer science PhDs in the world. Two Fields Medal winners. And uh, the only time I heard that before is a movie called Goodwill Hunting. And uh, um, he goes, I don't need any more of them. I need somebody to organize them into a warfighting formation. You're the guy that's going to do it. So get your polygraph and coming up here, you're, you're coming here. So I did. But what I learned is cyberspace is a lot like other things. If you understand the objective, you can you can put it together. But it's honestly, it's the same same kind of battle space as anything else. It just happens at light speed. And you just need to um, you need to put together a plan to go do that. We did, we have done that as a nation. So I did that for two and a half years as a one star general and then got brought back for a bonus trip back as a three-star to be the deputy commander of the United States Cyber Command. So I did that. And I still have very, I've had brought my NSA friends out here. They've enjoyed 7B. They love it out here. They come out and live out in the lake and have fun. They're, they are the Mensa crowd. They're different than me, but they're wonderful people. And they, they, they do an incredible thing for our country to help keeping us safe. But we are under attack in cyberspace. But uh, we also have capability too. And um, bottom line is we've basically created capabilities to keep our nation safe by creating a deterrence in cyberspace, which is really important. But it requires a very different way of thinking about things, but it still it fits in the military realm of things. You just, there will, cyberspace will have, uh, will factor in our, in our future fights, but we just have to be, uh, we have to provide a credible deterrent for people not to do that. And the heart, the best thing about anything, it's like anything, whether it's crime or it's, you need to make yourself a harder target than the person next door, the unit next door. So it's about making yourself a harder target so that they go after the easier ones. And that's, that's standard warfare. Look, kill the ones that are the outliers, the easier ones to get, and basically try to make yourself strong. Space, um, I think what's interesting, what's going on in space right now is the commercial side of the house is leading in space. Mr. Musk is leading in space. What we need in space right now, if you ask me, and I'm actually factoring in some of these discussions, is you need an FAA for space. Not the FAA, you need an FAA for space because it's for the same reason we made an FAA out of the CAA in the 1930s. We, the, and it was not the government that forced a new organization to come in to take care of commercial aviation. It was the commercial aviation industry that said we need standards so that we don't kill everybody in these airplanes and we, we can keep bad actors out and basically raise the game and make money, open up space for commerce, just like our airspace is. And frankly, I think the, the more we make space open to commerce, the less we'll be fighting over it. All right. Um, and, and you want to if you tie your economies together, the last thing you want to do is wreck your economy by knocking down a bunch of satellites over your, your airspace or your, your space. But I think it's a really important thing for us to do as a nation. And guess who doesn't have a bunch of government regulations to try to go through the FAA to launch space satellites. China doesn't have that. So we should be kicking the crap out of those guys. Sorry, right? But we're not because we're going too slow. We need to get the government, right, to start letting the industry lead this space out here, this area out here. I really believe that. Much like we do in the FAA. 
I fly my military airplane throughout U.S. airspace whenever I wanted. I could I followed the rule set. I knew how to do it. Now deconflict and not run into airliners, which is vastly different than the way they did in Europe. We trained all of our guys and gals to go do that. We need to open up the space commons for commerce, and I think we'll. So we, and I used to tell other people. I gave a class at uh, Princeton uh, National Security. Uh, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. The number one component to our national security is our is our economy. If you have a crappy economy, you can't buy all the the power tools, the gee whiz stuff to go keep us safe. So the imperative of having a strong U.S. economy and being an economic engine has never been more important than it is right now. Never more important than it is right now. What your thoughts are with the fact that the recruitment is down so much? Yeah. Um, recruitment is really down when I joined as well. And frankly, I looked at my base school class. We were college kids, but a lot of... Today, we, we wouldn't get, you know, or at least two years ago, we wouldn't get in. We wouldn't be allowed in. Grades weren't good enough. Um, physical fitness, we weren't good enough. The Marine Corps, you know, Marine Corps is pretty good at making your physical fitness to standard um, over a period. You know, they can coerce you into doing that. Um, and mine, mine was always good, but I think it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a good sign. So one of the things that I forgot to say about veterans, I spent a lot of time talking to young people, men and women, all walks of life about, the joy I felt an honor to serve. I, I didn't know how lucky I was to be an American citizen until I did an exchange for the British. That's where, and, I'm, and looking through a fence in West Germany into East Germany from, from 1989 looking into 1945. I mean, Cobblestone Road, just junk. Um, communism, anybody thinks communism work, is an idiot, is an idiot. It doesn't work. It doesn't motivate people. Like you talked about, know your stuff, better yourself. That doesn't matter how hard you work to better yourself in a communistic government, you don't get ahead. Only the rich and powerful get ahead. In this country here, it is true meritocracy. You can make your way and you can't get ahead. Um, you can't get ahead. Um, so I think, um, and recruitment's down is a, is a challenge right now because we need to be working hard to get young people to join. I've stumbled into the Marine Corps, but once I stumbled that way, I got a lot of encouragement to do that and to stay. And all my fraternity brothers were like, what did you do? What have you done? I said, and I was the least likely guy to join the Marine Corps. They're like, what are you, what are you doing with this? And like, that same summer, five guys went from my fraternity house. They all, after I joined and got accepted, they said, if he can do it, we all can do it, right? <laughs> all of us stayed at least 20 years from that one, one little frat house in Pennsylvania. Very unlikely. Um, but, yeah, and it was, and we all were like, and that, they all looked up to us. I mean, they all started to look up to us, and we stayed in. It was a really great, it was a good life, and we had purpose and meaning. But if someone doesn't talk to people about it, that's a big role for veterans. I spent a lot of time, I spent some time with a kid who emigrated here from Thailand at age 13. His uncle is a former CIA guy that I work with. And his uncle says, would you talk to him about service academies? And so first I say, well, I won't write anybody recommendation, recommendation list to talk to him. And I didn't go to service academy, my kids did. So I did do that. And this kid's now end game and getting accepted to one of them. But take the time to go talk to people about the good stuff about military, and talk to them about the bad stuff too, right? Because there's a lot of bad stuff out there. I've met the best leaders in the world in the military and the worst. 
and into the Marine Corps too, right? So um, the, yeah, but honestly, it's a great way to get ahead. And it, and you want to talk about kids from Idaho? We need kids from Idaho in the, in the military. We do. And we might have had, all of us might have had some other experiences out there, some, not some great ones. But I can guarantee there's more good than there's bad, right? And I always tell people, you said, the Marine Corps is like the French Foreign Legion. If you, we don't care unless you murdered somebody before you came here you, and you, you get through boot camp. It, but if, once you do that, once you come across that line, you know what I'm talking about, right? If you follow our rule set, you can be Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps. So you can run the tables. And we have Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps have been just like that. My brother went to prison three times. Same house, same parents, right? If he had joined the service, he would have had that structure and that discipline and that top cover to maybe make him not be a knucklehead, right? But bottom line, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, it's really important. I mean, that's getting good young people to serve. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you have enjoyed the episode, please click the subscribe button and get notified when new episodes are published. Please take a moment to share these episodes with a friend. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have something to share with the community, please email info at theveteransclub.org.